Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Carl Weinberg, Chief Economist of High Frequency Economics, and Jonathan Golub, Chief U.S. Market Strategist with RBC Capital Markets. Both of them join me now. Great to have you with us. Good morning. Uh, Jonathan, let me start with you. Uh, at this point in the game, are you paying as much attention to polls here as PEs? Well, I mean, in, 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 the very, in the very near term, the polls aren't really what's important. If you look at the Vegas odds, the Vegas odds are that, that Hillary is an 80% 80, 80 chance of winning. So the polls make it seem closer than it, it probably is. And those odds obviously move substantially after the, the Comey announcement over the weekend. Uh, is this more uncertain than you expected it would be? I wonder if over the last week you have changed much in terms of your, your investment strategy in light of what we've seen in the polls, in light of the, the uncertainty. No, I mean, if, if, if you're investing with a, with a three-week horizon, then this is important. If you're investing with a one-year horizon, um, I'm not sure that that much is, um, has, ultimately, uh, has ultimately changed here. I mean, what are we looking at? We're looking at a, a relatively weak economy. That's probably going to be the case under either, either uh, candidate. We're also looking at an environment where equities are returning a boatload of capital back to shareholders, which makes them attractive, and I think that that's the case. The tone of what leads the market and the internals will be quite different, though, depending on the candidate. Carl Weinberg, let me bring you in here. Carl Weinberg with, with High Frequency Economics. How have you forecasted this out, and has it changed much for you? here in the last week or so? Well, the last week, you know, we've been, uh, our baseline case has been a Clinton victory and the polls seem to support that. But of course, we've all been through Brexit and we know that the polls can be wrong. So we're all waiting till, uh, uh, till Wednesday morning to know a little bit more about what shape policy is going to take. I suspect the market is doing pretty much the same thing at this point. While there'll be some betting on the probability of uh, this candidate or that candidate winning, at the end of the day, we have to first find out who the candidate is, and then we also have to understand the shape of Congress before an investor really knows what to do. You know, you look at the Trump uh, campaign's uh, 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 propensity toward protectionism, and you think, well, that has implications for certain companies. You look at the tax policies of both candidates, they have different implications for different companies. So I think if you're an investor, uh, right now, you really have to see how the companies you're looking at are going to be affected by whoever wins and by whatever the shape of Congress is. And we just don't know that on Monday morning. I'll ask both of you this question, Carl. Let me start with you. There is the tendency here to draw the parallel to that Brexit vote. How, how illustrative uh, is that? How illuminating is it to have that parallel? Well, that's a really good question, and I don't think anybody knows the answer. I mean, I wish I knew why the Brexit polls were off by so much, and I wish I knew why the Brexit vote went the way that it did, which reveals my politics a little bit. But to be honest with you, um, uh, I think polling is, a, is not a science. It's an art, and there's interpretation. There's polling techniques. There's a lot of things can go wrong in a poll. So at the end of the day, what matters is when the votes are counted, how it all turns out, and also whether there are any hanging chads or other things like that that cloud the election 
expected result. You know, the worst possible outcome of all of this is we get to Wednesday and we don't have an answer, and we get to Thursday and we don't have an answer, and we have a protracted dispute over what the result actually is. That's a possible outcome, too, that's not part of any of the polls. And if that's the way it goes, that will be very disruptive for the economy. Jonathan, how about from a market perspective, how useful is it to look back on that Brexit vote? Well, I mean, I think there was one lesson, which is when you have a populist election, um, the enthusiasm for populist leaders um, can't be uh, underestimated. So, you know, I'm not, you know, we we could, in fact, be surprised. And that's why the odds of a a Trump win are probably greater than the, the electoral map would tell you. Um, that they, they should be. But I, I do agree with the point that Carl was making, which is um, what we really want here is a landslide one way or another so that we we have a clean break from all of this horrible rhetoric that we've been engaged in for so long and something which allows us to move b- beyond this in a much more constructive way. And I don't think that that's what we're going to get um, after election night. John Golub with us, RBC Capital Markets, and Carl Weinberg. Good morning, everyone. David Gura, uh, Greg Villier, publishes moments ago. He calls the Senate a coin toss. Uh-huh. Probably not determined until early Wednesday morning. Somehow I think David Gura will be up then. <laughs> I don't know what you'll be doing, David, but early S- sitting at a desk Wednesday talking, I think. morning yeah. on uh, the Senate. Greg Villier, he'll be with us tomorrow. Looking forward. Uh, to that as well. Carl, the backdrop here as we've been talking through the morning is a, 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 a wall of economic data and the back and forth linked into politics. And the politics is not only this election, it's the Italian election coming up, the French election uh, coming up, and on and on. It's populism uh, pushed up against the elites is essentially what we've got. How will that play out in America? Gosh, you know, I wish I knew it's a question that I'm pondering from a personal point of view. You know, have we gotten to the point in this country where emotion overtakes facts and where, you know, you go through a whole presidential campaign and there's a distinct shortage of, of first of all, any facts and secondly, uh, accurate facts on both sides. Um, And yet we're deciding a presidency, you know, without discussing important issues, you know, the growth rate of GDP. I haven't heard that mentioned by either candidate specifically. You know, I've only heard GDP and the economy mentioned in emotional terms and hard issues, as we talked about on television earlier this morning, like Social Security and funding uh, the uh, our changing population, the, the relationship between generations. These are all the issues of our times and they haven't been part of this conversation at all. It's very disturbing to me. But as you say, Tom. Worldwide, this mm-hmm. is what we're seeing. I chime in here. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I, I do think that that there there has been a mention of of GDP, but it hasn't been in serious terms. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you've heard you've heard um, candidates talking about you know if I do the the following things, we're going to get GDP back to four percent and five percent, and those are just silly numbers. I mean, the reality is is that there there might be things that we can do. Um, to, to create economic efficiency, but we're but we are in a slower growing world. The realities around that, uh, you know, Carl was mentioning on on TV this morning, the fact that we're going to be facing um, you know real long term deficit related issues and and retirement issues over the next eight or ten years. So this presidency is going to have to address those, and they weren't even part of the uh, public debate. But I think the, the key here is the reality of lower interest rates and lower growth is something that investors, professional investors, are focused on, but it's not really part of the public debate yet. I wonder if it goes back to, to the, the, the thoughts that Greg Vallier was expressing and, and Tom was quoting from just a, a moment ago. A, a recognition here that to do much of anything, you need the, the participation of the willing participation of Congress. Uh, and at this point, uh, that still seems like something that will be difficult for the next president to get. 
I don't know. I mean, I, I'm I'm of the belief that the whether or not fiscal um, policy is the solution to the problems that that you know the weakness we have. I think that what you've heard is that that people are dying for some alternative, and ultimately. Why is it that we're seeing so much political extremism on both the right and the left, not only in the U.S., but really we're talking about around the world, is because when you have weak economics, um, people are willing to listen to crazier and crazier things in order to, um, in order to, to get some type of, a, of, of economic boost. So I think there'd be more interest in fiscal stimulus and, and new ideas than, than we've had in the past. Carl, you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think Congress is the key to everything. That what, what matters after this election, wh- whoever wins, is that Congress gets together, comes together, and does its job. And its job is. Oh, to come find... on! You actually believe that's going to happen? Well, I I hope it happens because what we've seen over the last few years has been unacceptable. And what we need right. to see moving forward to get anything done is for what's probably going to be a right. divided Congress, Republicans in one house, Democrats in the other house, and Congress has to do its thing, proposing oh, budgets man. that make sense. <laughs> And the Senate has to, and the Senate has to approve nominees. Do you realize you're in a room with David Gura, Tom Keene, John Tucker, and Michael Barr, and you, it, the level of cynicism in here is, it, it, the meter's really over. Contain it here. Well, let's consider what happens if that doesn't occur. Okay, let's consider what happens if a contentious Congress comes back that can't agree on anything. Right. Then we see neither Trumponomics nor Clintonomics, if there's such a word. All right, occur. All right, we go into a vacuum on policy in which none of the issues of our time are addressed. And how does that make us Amer- better? How does that make yeah. America great? And if you have a Congress that won't uh, 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 approve appointments, whether Supreme Court or whether Treasury Secretary, or right. Garbage collector in Washington, D.C. If Congress okay. can't get together on that, then where do we go? Uh, John Golub with us, RBC Capital Markets, Carl Weinberg, High Frequency Economics, sort of looking at the the blur here on a Monday before Tuesday. John Golub, uh, one of your great themes is dividend growth, return of cash to shareholders, et cetera, et cetera. How are those stocks valued as compared to other, other foolish times like the so-called Nifty 50? Are we Nifty 50 valuations today? Well, first of all, the overall stock market is is you know not crazy at like sixteen and a half PE, but the low vol stocks, and we're not even talking about the high dividend stocks, but that low vol basket of stocks is trading very expensive. And probably the most important thing, it's very interest rate sensitive. So if we get inflation to continue to ride higher and interest rates rise, that basket is really vulnerable. The valuation itself is not a problem. It's the risk to interest rate rises that on, on that basket that's most concerning. So what, what is your interest rate call here? You looked at what you and Tom Purcelli yeah. get together and, you know, what do you what's your call? Yeah, you know, first of all, as a starting point, my, my view is that interest rates are going to be lower for longer. That said, we are seeing a real pickup in inflation. We saw this on Friday's job reports where inflation, um, wage inflation is running 2.8% and with a 4.9% unemployment rate, which basically means, means full employment, there's a risk that interest rates start to um, pick up more Would than people agree? expect. Well, I think we're looking at uh, acceleration of wages. It's unambiguous now. We're looking at a uh, labor market that's tight by pretty much any measure. Tom, I know you were at the New York Economics Club uh, uh, two weeks ago when Stan Fisher was there. He told us uh, pretty straightforward terms that the Fed sees its job as being done, which means we've reached full employment and the inflation target. So what happens next is that uh, the economy gets too tight, if history is any guide. We run hotter than we want to be. We see wages accelerate, and then that leads eventually to higher interest 
interest rates probably faster than the market expects because that's just the way it always works out. Takar, where do you fall on, on the argument that Janet Yellen raised at the, the Boston Fed conference about running the, the economy hot? Uh, a, a smart idea? Well, it's an interesting idea, and if only they could do it, that would be great. But I know you're going to have Alan Greenspan on in a little bit uh, later this morning on, here on Bloomberg somewhere. And, you know, he's the guy who described monetary policy as being a blunt-edged instrument. And, you know, can you really fine-tune the economy when you only have one weapon, well, interest rates? And, and the, the thing is it's more, more likely that they're going to be unable to do that, than, although their intentions may be good. John, let me ask you about the, the GDP figures in your most recent note. You have a, a chart, a simple chart, looking at GDP historically, and the, the, the downward trend is strike, striking, the new average is, is striking as well. What should our takeaway be from, from that? I, I don't think we're in a new normal of low growth. I think we were in an old abnormal that the 50-year period from the mid-1950s all the way up to 06, where GDP was three and a half. That is gone. It's not coming back. And the reasons for it, um, women entering the labor force, um, huge pickup in housing activity on the back of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the like, those jimmied up the prior numbers. And so the, the head fake was the prior, not the, the weakness uh, now. So I think this is kind of where we are, which is why the Fed can do all they want to run this economy hot. We can spend all we want on fiscal stimulus, and we're still going to probably be left with something close to 2% GDP. And the reason they're principally is demographics? Demographics is 80% of, uh, of the story. There's other smaller issues. Um, you know, beating up on the banking sector um, is surely not a help. You need a healthy banking sector to get growth. That's why we see weaker growth in Europe, among other reasons. Um, but demographics is the, the primary issue. John Gallup, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. taking different taxes this morning. We're looking at markets and certainly a better market off the FBI announcement and a surge stronger Mexican peso for those keeping score 18.67 distant from 19 distant from 20 stronger peso a lower statistic 18.68 right now futures up 28 Dow futures up 229 and all the usual correlations there as well. One thing that is a mystery is how our next commander-in-chief will command the Pentagon. We have terrific perspective, and it has been valued perspective from James Trevitas, Tufts University, and uh, before a selected few years with the United States Navy, uh, the Admiral, of course, uh, very much associated with the United States representation with NATO as well. Admiral, good morning. Does a president affect the spending of the Pentagon or is a Pentagon such its own thing that there's the delusion that defense affects it, but it's really just keeps going, keeps going, keeps going by itself? Well, terrific question, Tom, and, you know, kind of harkens back to uh, Eisenhower's warnings about the military-industrial complex. I think the answer is somewhere in the middle, which is to say that probably 65 to 70 percent of the Pentagon's budget is baked in. It's personnel costs. It's long-term contracts. That remaining 30, 35 percent, however, is discretionary within the Pentagon, and the administration and the president have great influence over it. When I look at the Pentagon and I look at the influence that we will have, it comes down to weapons programs. Would President Clinton 
be sharply different from President Obama? I doubt it. I think that the uh, Clinton national security team will include people like uh, Michelle Flournoy, Bill Burns, Nick Burns, uh, very uh, broad area expertise on the security side. And I expect uh, probably small incremental increases in the defense budget under uh, President Clinton. Admiral Stavridis, I want to get get your take on on what General Marty Dempsey has said about the role of retired military uh, officials in this election so far. He's been critical uh, of 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 them speaking out. He's been been critical of the candidates holding up uh, their endorsements. Uh, does it put a bad taste in your mouth? Are we seeing a change here uh, when we see politicians uh, holding up lists of, of of admirals and generals who have endorsed them? I don't think so. Um, I I disagree with General Dempsey on this. I think that. It's uh, perfectly fine for retired military to weigh in. I think that they're citizens. I think the public is perfectly capable of understanding who's retired and who's not. We would never want to see, and we never will see, active duty soldiers, sailors, airmen weighing in. But I think it's fine for uh, retired, and I'll give you two prominent examples who are chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. One is Colin Powell, who's endorsed candidates and endorsed in this election Secretary Clinton, for example, even though he's a Republican. And prior to that, uh, Admiral Bill Crowd, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, endorsed uh, the first President Clinton. So there's precedent. I don't think it's uh, a threat to the republic, and it does not leave a bad taste in my mouth. Are you satisfied with the degree to which the candidates have been talking about uh, foreign policy during this, this election? I, I would say they've talked about it a lot. I don't know how much in, in, in what detail, if that's been satisfying. But how about you? What's your sense of how they've been talking about it? I think like most Americans, I'd say the unfortunate character of this election is that we spent, seems to me, about 60 percent of the time on um, ephemeral issues, um, kind of the personalities of the candidates, uh, sharp elbows, uh, denigrating mm-hmm. comments, and only to my ear about 40 yeah. percent of the time on the issues. And of that, maybe 20 percent on foreign policy. So, no, I don't think right. we've talked enough about foreign policy. Well, I, I think we can all agree on that. Uh, Admiral, the morning after, or I guess five days after, or 20 days after, certainly by January 20, whatever, a president is briefed. How do guys like you, with all that brass in your chest, how do you brief a president, either experienced like Secretary Clinton or someone new at the job like President Trump? I think the uh, active duty admirals and generals will be called over uh, early and often, Tom, (laughs) frankly, because I think the new president is going to be challenged early and often, uh, starting from uh, Moscow. So you you take into account the president's level of experience and expertise. You adjust the briefings. Um, We are pretty good at this, and we can deal with candidates who come into office with vast knowledge and are veterans themselves, and we deal with candidates who have zero experience. So uh, we know how to do this. I think back on the, the conference you had at, the, at Tufts just a couple weeks ago, our colleague Michael mm-hmm. McKee was there speaking to you mm-hmm. then. You've written that the rest of Europe and the United States need to stand with Greece uh, during this difficult period. President Obama has announced one of his last trips abroad, if not his last trip abroad uh, as president, will be to Greece. Uh, with, with all of your experience and, and, and knowledge of, of that country, what do you hope that, that he does there? What do you hope that he says? 
Well, I think hope is the key word. What what has really held the Greeks back in a psychological sense, let's leave aside the obvious challenges in the economy, but psychologically the people feel very beaten down. They feel as though they're in this kind of hot corner of Europe on the front line to the Syrian war, got a rest of Turkey across the Aegean, and they feel as though the rest of the West has kind of let them drift away a little bit. So simply by coming to Athens and speaking to the people. He'll uh, energize the Greek people. And I, over time, I'm a big believer that the human capital in Greece is going to uh, make that country succeed. Does it need to be a speech that centers on, on economics? Or are you hoping for, for uh, oratory that's bigger than that? I think uh, both. I think it, it does need uh, some economic underpinning. It needs some security commentary, given the, how the Greeks are positioned geographically. But above all, I'd like to see mm-hmm. President Obama bring his admittedly extraordinary oratorical skills to bear mm-hmm. to inspire the people. Admiral, back to the new president. How staffed, I'm, I'm usually saying this as an amateur, how staffed is our army? How staffed is our Navy? Remember when we talked about aircraft carriers out to sea with not enough personnel on board? Are, are, are we properly budgeted now to, to run our military? I think we have roughly the right amount of money coming into the department, Tom, but I would argue we need to reallocate it somewhat. We probably need small incremental increases, but we need more money in cyber defense. We need more money in unmanned vehicles. We need more money in special forces. Um, We need uh, to do a, a renovation of our uh, nuclear triad. Those are the big ticket items where I think the money needs to go. Okay. In terms of personnel, we're, we're pretty strong. But if the economy does pick up post-election, that competition for bright young men and women will right. uh, hurt us in that dimension. Okay. So to bring it f- full circle back to our original question, finally, Admiral mm-hmm. uh, Stavitas, if that's the case, can a new president make those tough old military decisions to budget Stravitas' new military decisions? <laughs> I think uh, she or he can, and it'll require both firm will on the part of the president, also experience in Washington to understand how the system works, and thirdly, a good team of advisors around him or her. Admiral Stravitas, lastly here, are, are you convinced that uh, that can come from the White House, that can come from the Pentagon? In years past, we have seen Congress overrule uh, Pentagon budget yeah. requests. Do you think that's going to change? Uh, in the end, I think we all know this, the uh, the Congress is, has the final word on the budget. That's the way our system is built. But um, an administration can influence that in a variety of ways from uh, making the appropriate political accommodations, quid pro quos, to mm-hmm. simply laying out articulate cases to the Congress, mm-hmm. to making the public case. I think the new administration is going to need to do all those things to get its budget through. Admiral, thank you so much for uh, your perspective over the length of this election cycle. I'm sure we'll touch uh, upon you as we move into next year. James Chavitas is at Fletcher School, Tufts University, and we should say that uh, he was vetted, I guess would be the right word, as a vice presidential candidate for Secretary Clinton. We'll have to we'll have to ask we, if we he feels show, at all wistful after after this know, campaign cycle. Maybe not. Yeah. I can't think of somebody more apolitical yes, than James Tremidas, yes. but we should say that just to be clear. Who you put your trust in matters. 
investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. David Gura here with Tom Keen on Bloomberg Surveillance. We've been talking all morning about the degree to which policy has or has not been discussed on the campaign trail during this election season. Our focus now shifts to what happens after the election tomorrow. How soon will we see Washington get down to the business of crafting policy? Dan Clifton is the head of policy research at Strategus Research Partners, head of the D.C. office for Strategus, and he joins us now. Morning, Dan. Good morning. Thanks for having me on today. What happens here after the election? What's yeah. what's going to be at the top of the agenda for either a President Clinton or a President Trump? Yeah, let me let me just slow down for one second and say that once the election ends, we'll have a lame duck session of Congress, and I think that will be important for a new President Clinton or President Trump. Will the Republicans actually put uh, President Obama's Supreme Court pick? In, uh, in into the Supreme Court uh, before the new president takes office. If the Democrats take over the Senate and Hillary Clinton wins the election, they're threatening to put somebody on there who's more left of center. So you may see some sort of lame duck deal where we actually do put the Supreme Court pick in early. And I think that's critical for the next president because that is something they won't have to waste their uh, early political capital on once they get into office. So what happens in lame duck will be important. And, and the second second thing that I'd watch is that we're continuing to hear that maybe Paul Ryan will have trouble getting the votes for Speaker of the House. That vote will happen before the new president comes into office as well. could happen as early as November or December when they take those votes. So who will run the Republican House will be critical. And if the Republicans get into a lot of infighting before President Clinton takes office, uh, that could only complicate their efforts uh, in the new administration itself. Now, now that I've done all that to your new question, <laughs> yeah. to your question about what what, what will happen with a with a Hillary Clinton presidency? You know, I think what Hillary is suggesting is that she's going to come in and she's going to try and be part bipartisan early in her administration. And the reason for that is that she really wants to get infrastructure spending, and she's going to look to see if she can do some sort of deal with the Senate and with the Republican House that would enable her to get that spending. The Republicans will obviously be asking for some sort of corporate tax reform changes uh, for that additional spending. There will be problems both on Hillary's left and Paul Ryan's right uh, in terms of getting that deal done. But I think that's going to really set the stage for the first six, seven months. And I would remind investors that we're going to have to raise the debt ceiling sometime in the summer. So doing it while you're handing out goodies like corporate tax rate cuts makes it a little bit easier. Uh, But this is not going to be easy to to do in divided government. Where are we on government shutdown? I mean, uh, one of our experts, Stan Collender, said don't count on it. But is it out there? Is it something to consider? Sure. So, Tom, uh, our fiscal year started on October 1st. That budget runs up on December 9th, I believe, is the date. So we're going to have to pass a budget in the lame duck session of Congress again. Why we keep going back that the lame duck period is going to be important. Now, I don't think that there will be a government shutdown. But what the debate is, is do you do a three-month extension? We did that when President Obama took office in 2008. Or do you do a full budget in December? That's what we did when George W. Bush came into office in 2001. And I think that will be the parameter 
parameters of the discussion in the lame duck session mm. of Congress. We're far more worried about the debt ceiling in the summer of 2017 than we are about a potential government shutdown because of what we saw in 2011. Now, I tend to believe that it will get resolved, but what we learned in 2011 is that the process could be just as important as the outcome. Are you confident that Paul Ryan remains Speaker of the House? Uh, I would say that uh, we give it a greater than 50 percent probability. Uh, we just got a new letter this morning of some moderates asking to delay when that vote will happen. Uh, that's never a good sign that you have the votes uh, to do that if you're looking to delay. But let me tell you what I think is very important in the data this morning that it's completely underreported and being overshadowed by the Comey data is that the, ma the best macro indicator for House seats is now indicating that the Republicans are just going to lose two Republican House seats. Now, the number may be a little bit higher, but three weeks ago, that number was flashing 15 to 18 seats. If the Republicans only lose two or five or seven seats in the House, that will really strengthen Paul Ryan for two reasons. First, he'll have a larger majority, so that gives him mm -hmm. some wiggle room to win the votes. And two, he does much better than expected where he was supposed to lose at least 15 seats. That would really strengthen his hand. So the outcome of the House races will really determine the strength of Paul Ryan. But my sense today is that he, mm -hmm. will, he will be House Speaker. And if not, he's going to go watch Packer games with his kids on Sunday afternoon and, and probably now, leave Congress. What Senate race are you following most closely? Uh, Missouri. Uh, we think Missouri is very important. A Republican, uh, Roy Blunt, is underperforming. Nevada is going to be very interesting. Tom, you probably saw the news over the weekend that early voting has been very strong yeah. for Hillary Clinton in Nevada. That could affect the Senate race, and the Republicans mm -hmm. were looking in the polls to be holding that race. So that's going to be another important one. But Indiana, which Evan Bayh had a 15-point lead, he's now flipped uh, where the Republican is now in the lead. And I would, I would note that uh, Nate Silver flipped the, the Senate today. Uh, for the Republicans in his model. So you're really seeing these down-ballot races, both at the Senate and House, have moved towards the Republicans as the race has tightened up. Trump yeah. may not win, but the impact of this has been to strengthen up the House and Senate seats. We are with Dan Clifton, Strategist Research Partners. David Girl, why don't you climb on board Dan Clifton here and and uh, see what he's thinking. Dan, you, you laid out a, a big agenda here for Congress yep. in the lame duck session. You didn't yep. mention the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, yep. Our Michael McKee spoke with Ambassador Michael Froman last week, yep. and uh, there's still a lot of bright-eyed optimism among the U.S. Trade Representative, just despite the fact that the odds seem stacked against him. What do you think? Is this going to get an up or down vote before President Obama leaves office? You know, politics is dynamic, right? So it's one thing to say, no, we're not going to vote on the Supreme Court pick. We're not going to vote on TPP. And then you have an election, and then you say, okay, what are we really going to do now? And I think a Supreme Court pick is more likely to be voted on than the TPP. And, and before there was a Donald Trump or a Bernie Sanders with their populist message, this TPP was already losing votes. And that's because there's some problems there with tobacco. So you lose the North Carolina and Kentucky. Centers. There's some issues with pharmaceuticals. And so you really never had a good, strong 218. Those issues would have been worked out probably, but then you throw on the populism of this campaign. And I would argue there are more Republicans that are against TPP today than when the campaign started, and there are more Democrats against TPP than when the campaign started. So it's still a very difficult vote in the House of Representatives, and I would argue that it might not get done in the lame duck session of Congress. That's important because you're going to start seeing our allies moving away from the U.S. Yeah. and looking for other trade opportunities without the TPP what, going into it. What effect. is your measure of gridlock? 
What does the, yeah. the Dan Clifton gridlock meter say? So I, I would argue, Tom, that uh, passing uh, bills is not a good indicator of the productivity of Congress because you could pass a lot of bad bills, right? And I would argue that gridlock is can you reasonably get your normal business done and could there be avenues for bipartisan cooperation if there is an emergency? And I'll give you one example. In 2002, we had a Democratic Senate. We had a Republican House. We were still able to get Sarbanes-Oxley legislation done. We were still able to get the Department of Homeland Security post-9-11. There was, there was the ability to get things done. And what I would really argue here is that we're, we're, we're underestimating what it's like when a new president comes into office. Hillary is very unpopular. Her numbers are you know, 40 percent approval rating. She's been there all year. But when she wins and the media focuses on her, you're going to start to see her numbers increase before she takes office. And most of the independent voters will start to rally around her. Okay, we may not like the two candidates, but let's see what they can do. And that gives her a little bit of political capital to get things done. I would also argue the same is true if Donald Trump wins. And a lot of people are ruling out Trump today, but there's still a chance for a surprise when he comes in. And then the question is, one, are you going to be able to get somebody on the Supreme Court? There's some talk about not putting anybody on the Supreme Court. So being able to come to a resolution on the Supreme Court, on the debt ceiling, these are the required things that we need to get done. The question for investors is whether monetary policy is is going to pass the baton to fiscal policy and see if we can do something on fiscal policy. And that's going to be a harder test to meet in gridlock. Dan, thank you so much. Dan Clifton with Strategus Research Partners as we go to the election uh, tomorrow. Uh, David Gurr and Tom King were sort of slicing and dicing and looking at uh, what we have. And what we have is now important perspective. Alan Greenspan is the chairman, former chairman of the Federal Reserve System. And on this day before an election, Chairman Greenspan joins us. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Um, I, I, I look, Alan Greenspan, at the scope of history and this new president that we will have. And many people talk of a reaffirmation of the independence of the Fed. You know William McChesney Martin. You know what happened in the early 1950s as he battled with Harry Truman and Treasury battled uh, with the Fed. And we found a common ground after 1951. Will this Fed move over the next four and the next eight years with a new renewed independence? I don't think there's anything new about independence. You either have it or you don't. And as far as I can see at this stage, uh, the Fed has pretty much restricted itself to being a central banker. Once it starts to get into the whole issue of trying to determine what its role in the society and in the economy is, we're in trouble. I I wonder the degree to which the the Fed is paying attention to markets, the degree to which it's paid attention to the markets when when you were helming it and it is now. How aware is it of what's going on? 105%. All all the time or or, 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 what what, what causes them to pay particular attention? Uh, It's, uh, you go with, well, let me give you my usual pattern. I would go into the board the first thing in the morning the first thing I would do 
is to see what the markets were doing, both in the United States and especially abroad, because obviously in Europe the markets have been open for five hours longer, and try to judge what the consequences are to the American economy and to the American financial system, and what type of adjustment would be required, if at all, and most of the times nothing. Uh, so that what we, well, what we used to do is to monitor the markets very closely, but act very rarely hastily. Do you think that, that that kind of attention is being paid today and, and with the, the level of relative transparency we have now, the news conferences, uh, the, the occasional interviews, the, the ton of speeches we have from, from Fed officials, uh, is some of that lost? Well, I don't think that the issue of how much transparency you have is that critical. It's what the content of the transparency is. Uh, central bankers are no better than an average good economist in forecasting the economy. As a consequence of that, we are limited in our projections of what policy is apt to be by the limits of our knowledge. And in that context, you try to convey as much as will be useful to the economy and where there is a long-term strategic position mm -hmm. in place about where the Fed is going, to just to reinforce that. Uh, Chairman, you know that language matters. You did that with your age of turbulence. I think Sebastian Malaby captured the life and times of Alan Greenspan quite nicely in his book. We just spoke with Sebastian about the man who knew. Alan Greenspan, what has changed is the language. We now have forward guidance data dependency and evidence. I know you don't speak about present monetary policy of any central bank, but can you define for us this new word, evidence? What does evidence mean to Alan Greenspan? <laughs> evidence means the same thing it means in a court. Facts and whether or not they are valid. And uh, that's as much as I can say on the issue, unless you want me to get it into detailed econometrics. Well, the detailed econo econometrics is making forward guesstimates and plugging in beliefs forward and judging from that. Do we need to move back to a more rules-based set of evidences, or is discretion the better choice right now? Well, I've, I've argued over the years uh, that we have to do discretion, largely because any fixed paradigm doesn't seem to work very well. You run into very difficult problems and the system breaks down. So you have no choice but to use the discretion of the Federal Open Market Committee and its best judgment. But one thing that I think is important is not to communicate to markets seemingly more than you know, because it, the market will come up and bite you, so to speak. So it's, it's a very, uh, the one thing I learned at the Federal Reserve as the years went on is that there's a, an extraordinary amount of just plain, analytical, simple work of judging how the economy is going. And the best central banking is the best, is, is to, really determined by the best economic forecasting. 
So I would say that central banking starts with economic forecasting, which essentially means have a global view of how the system works and what it is likely to do if the Fed moves in one direction or the other. And uh, once you've set that in place, you're basically using your state of knowledge of forecasting to translate it into monetary policy. A question here about, about the institution. On the, the campaign trail, uh, its independence, its integrity has been called into doubt by at least one of the, the candidates. Does the Fed need to do more to stand up for itself? In other words, is it at risk here of, of losing control of the narrative? If, if it's becoming a political punching bag, does that damage the institution? It does, but it's not up to the Federal Reserve to, to cure that. It's up to the general political system which put the Fed in place. Remember that the Federal Reserve governors were given 14-year terms. Why? To insulate them from short-term political considerations. And the way the Fed was set up originally in 1913 and started in 1914 was basically a series of things which tried to blunt the relationship between monetary policy and, and uh, I would just say, mm. uh, for uh, the, the, the average view of everybody. In other words, the, you can't take, uh, you, you cannot take a survey of the whole of the population to determine what they would like to be yeah. the monetary policy. You have to have expertise like you need expertise in economic forecasting. Mm. There is no substitute for that. Alan Greenspan, thank you so much. The former chairman of the Federal Reserve this day before the nation uh, votes. He comes to us from our Washington uh, studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.